The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer, and we have a special bonus episode here for you. We usually record our and distribute our podcasts on Wednesdays, but here on this Friday, we are sharing with you an episode of the podcast AI with AI. That's AI with Andy Ilichinsky and David Broyles, where we were a guest on their podcast sharing some of our insights from our podcast, as well as talking about kind of where the future of AI is heading. So please do listen to this recording. Uh, this is with uh, uh, myself and Kathleen Walsh, hosts of the AI Today podcast, being interviewed by the AI with AI podcast host, David uh, Broyles and Andy Ilichinsky. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to AI with AI. That's Artificial Intelligence with Andy Lachinsky, a weekly podcast from CNA Talks where we discuss the latest breakthroughs and implications in artificial intelligence and autonomy. We have an email address, ai at cna.org. If you have any questions or comments, just drop us a line, ai at cna.org. And if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, don't forget to check out our website where we will post all the links that we discussed today. That's cna.org forward slash C-A-A-I. Well, with that, Andy, I'm excited to say that we have two very special guests joining us for this week's podcast, Kathleen Walsh and Ron Schmelzer, the hosts of AI Today and the founders of Cognolytica, which is an AI research education and advisory firm. So Kathleen, Ron, thanks so much for being here and welcome to AI with AI. So we were just on their podcast recording a, a really fascinating discussion. So we're going to continue that conversation, learn a lot more about AI today and the work that Kathleen and Ron are doing there. We got to know from Kathleen and Ron about this interview exchange, and we thought it was going to be an exciting opportunity for a couple of reasons. So first, Kathleen and Ron started the AI Today podcast nearly four years ago with their first episode around September 2017. Andy and I started AI with AI a couple months later in November of 2017. So not only have we both been covering the topic of AI for about the same time, we have a couple of the longer-running and longer-lived AI podcasts. So this is a really fun chance for us to take a step back and talk about some of the things that we've seen over the last few years. So with that, enough of me yammering. We want to hear from our guests here now. So let's start with some introductions and backgrounds and maybe uh, a little bit on how AI today came to be. So how about we start with you, Kathleen? Over to you. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to be on your podcast. So I'm Kathleen Mulch. I'm a managing partner and principal analyst at Cognolytica, which, as you said, is an AI-focused research, advisory, and education firm. And I started off my career in marketing way back in the day. And I worked at a very large company, Hart Hanks, and we managed large data projects. We did a lot of direct mail. So I specifically worked on the Bed Bath & Beyond account and their Bye Bye Baby brand. So they have incredibly large databases, as you can imagine. And that really got me interested with data. And I also got to see all of the messy aspects with data as well, how important data cleansing is, how important data organization and management is, and what you share, what you don't share, privacy concerns, governance, all of that stuff. 
And I loved all of that stuff, but I also am very entrepreneurial. So my husband and I founded a startup and it was called Hourly Bee. And it was really a platform that connected service providers and end customers. I found out that space is very competitive and also you need a lot of venture to stay in it. So the company didn't quite work out. But through founding that, I met Ron and he was working at Tech Breakfast. He had created Tech Breakfast. And so I joined the team and Tech Breakfast, it was a morning demo style event. And we had it in 11 locations throughout the United States. It was in Boston, Massachusetts, and New York, the DC, Baltimore region, Northern Virginia, which is where we're physically based, Texas, Austin, Texas, North Carolina as well, the Raleigh, Durham area, and then of course, Silicon Valley. And from there, we got to see a lot of people pitch their demos and their products and their companies that they had created. And we started in maybe 2016 to really see a trend towards voice assistance and how natural language processing was coming about. So with that, we started Cognolytica, which is an AI-focused research advisory and education firm. And we have seen lots of use cases now on how AI is actually being applied. We cover the market. So we track over 20,000 vendors in this space across a broad range of different industries. I'll also let Ron talk a little bit about his background and Cognolytica as well. But so from there, we said, let's see what's going on with AI today. And so we said a great way to do that is to have a podcast. And then we can interview people in the industry who are actually doing AI. And we started it in 2017, as you mentioned, and we have never run out of things to say or guests to have on the show. We've really enjoyed working together. It's actually great that we like working with each other because otherwise we'd be spending a lot of time with each other not enjoying it. So I'm Ron Schmelzer, also a managing partner and principal analyst here at Cognolytica and one of the co-hosts of the AI Today podcast. And actually, the interesting thing is my experience with AI goes all the way back to my undergraduate years at MIT. When I actually went to MIT after I read this book called Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution when I was in high school, loved that book. And a lot of that book actually talks about AI, interestingly, because the early days of computing overlapped so heavily with the early days of AI. It's actually kind of inseparable. Alan Turing, who came up with a lot of the core concepts of the Turing machine and programmable machines, of course, was the same Alan Turing as the Turing test and AI, right? You know, Turing, who did the Enigma, the machine to break the Enigma, you know, codes the same guy who, who thinks about AI. And the same thing with Norbert Wiener and all these early computing folks were really thinking a lot about intelligence. So I went to uh, MIT and uh, my undergraduate advisor was Rodney Brooks, who, as you some may know, uh, one, this is a second wave of AI, you know, focused on, uh, you know, AI from the ground up, symbolic systems and, and learning from the environment and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, the funny thing is I didn't really do much with AI <laughs> during my undergraduate years. You'd think I had that golden opportunity, but it was also during the kind of the beginning wave of the dot-com boom and just got sucked into that. In 1994, we started one of the first e-commerce companies building shopping cart technology, a company called Virtue Mall, which became Channel Wave, raised over 60 million bucks and got acquired during the heyday of uh, the dot-com boom and that cycle, then the inevitable uh, crash, the dot-com boom, I started actually my first analyst firm called ZapThink, focused on service-oriented architecture and enterprise architecture for our listeners that may be aware of that interesting space. 
And that company actually grew pretty fast. And myself and Jason Bloomberg really grew that business and then was acquired in 2011 by Dovell Technologies, which is a government contractor actually in Northern Virginia. I had moved from Boston to Baltimore. And that's when I'm like, okay, Boston, very rich tech ecosystem. Baltimore, I wasn't so sure about that. So we started Tech Breakfast really as a way to find out what was happening in the tech ecosystem myself, actually. And of course, uh, you heard the rest of that story. Kathleen joined. And basically, the world is an amazing place. It came, comes full circle. I'm like, wow, I was doing AI 94 and I forgot about it. And now here we are in 2016, 2017. And we're like, AI is making this resurgence. And you've heard it since then, just been an amazing set of years of really tracking the regrowth, I would say the reinterest in this area of intelligent machines. Hey, Ron, quick question for you. Rodney Brooks, I'm very familiar with his work. I mean, a, a lot of what I've done, it goes back to what he did in the 80s and 90s, just a real incredible pioneer. He just founded a company, as you know, with Gary Marcus, Robust AI. Right. Have you guys had him on, on the show yet? <sighs> We've been trying. Oh, yeah. you, you got to get him on the show. We know. Rodney, I <laughs> we, have, we have emailed him a number of times. I'll tell you a funny story. I actually responded to an email he sent me in 1997. I still had that email. And I'm like, okay, I know it's the year 20, whatever. I'm responding. To this. He actually responded. He responded back. He's like, that's funny. You still have this email. I'm like, yeah, I still have the email. <laughs> I think he's on high demand. So yeah, we're constantly trying to get him on our pockets. But you're right. We also want to talk to him about some of the challenges in the robotics industry, because that's an industry that's just faced tremendous issues with companies just unfortunately burning out. And there's so many, the, the robotics deadpool is pretty deep, as they say. So speaking of trying to get a hold of someone for an interview, over the last four years, you've both been able to interview, again, a wide variety of people from industry and business and other thought leaders. So looking back over that time, what's your general sort of perspective looking back over those discussions that you've had? Yeah, we have been very fortunate to get a lot of people on our podcast. And we try to make sure that we get our guests from a wide range of different industries. So at Cognolytica, we cover both the public sector and the private sector. As I mentioned, we're based in the DC region. So as you can imagine, it's a lot of US federal that we get on the podcast. But one thing that we have been surprised about is that typically the government is late to technology adoption. But with AI, we've seen at least they've been very interested in it and talking about it, especially at the beginning a few years ago. I think that things have started to shift slightly. I know that the DOD is incredibly focused on artificial intelligence, not always public with what they're doing. So it's a little hard to publicly share and publicly see all of the incredible things that they do. But the civilian agencies have also been using it. So we've had examples of natural language processing applications, chatbots with predictive analytics solutions. And I think another trend that we've seen, which is somewhat AI, but also I think in general, is just the understanding of data and your personal data and how that affects different systems and how companies now need to manage that. So with data governance, for example, I think that this is starting to become something that people are paying much closer attention to than they were a few years ago when we started the podcast. I think some interesting things that we've seen from industry, because we've had many different industries. I mean, it's interesting that the podcasts that have seemed to have the most interest are when we talk to folks in the construction industry or in fashion, we had a deep conversation with Komatsu on AI in the mining industry. 
And, you know, of course, lots of folks in banking and in finance and insurance. And then we've interviewed CIO or CTO of 20th Century Fox and how they're using AI in movies and all these really interesting places. But it's always the ones that are like really mundane. You're like, that's interesting. You know, Komatsu, for example, they're trying to extract resources in places that are just getting more and more difficult to put humans. And of course, they would love the idea of autonomous mining solutions. And while they've put a lot of machinery down there, it's a rough environment for machines too. It's like temperatures and pressures and all that sorts of stuff. And so they're trying to basically you know, increase the ability of the worker to be more remote from the systems that are, are doing those tasks. I think that's one of the cool things that we've seen is just the breadth of applications. And actually, a lot of the unified challenges, the challenges that we're seeing in construction are not that much different than the challenges in insurance, for example. Now, when we were talking with you earlier, we got into sort of the topic of AI winter and potential cooling off and all that. And Andy and I have talked from, on that topic from time to time. This idea that you get this buildup of interest and research in the field of AI, and then it kind of peters out over time due to various other constraints and, and things that happen. Can you give us some sort of insight as to what you've been seeing about how things have been going in industry and, and how the market has been maturing and, and whatnot? Yeah, I think the, the first thing that we've seen is because we track so many companies, and, and of course, we, we're getting constantly bombarded by inbound requests for interviews from technology companies, is that it seems, especially in the last year, it's not that the pandemic has changed everything, but it has, certainly has adjusted some of the priorities. Or, or maybe it's just a natural effect. You know, when you have an industry that grows really rapidly, it, it's eventually you reach some sort of plateau and you just can't sustain that much more explosive growth. And it certainly has seemed, maybe looking at the beginning of this year to kind of where we are now, it's seeming that that wave of over-enthusiasm and hype and new venture creation and grand promises of what AI can do and promises of fully autonomous self-driving vehicles and conversational assistance that can answer any question. A lot of that stuff is being tempered, I think, by reality. And so I think we've at least reached some sort of plateau in the market. You know, whether this goes into the inevitable winters is a bit of a question, but we have seen some interesting things there about that, right, Kathleen? Exactly. We always are keeping a pulse on the market because in the last winters, we got there because people overpromised and underdelivered on what artificial intelligence could actually do. And so we're very mindful to not do that ourselves and to encourage others not to do that because once you go down that slippery slope, it's hard to come back. And I think that we have seen some companies do that. I think that's inevitable with any company. <laughs> A lot of times, you know, it's fake it till you make it and they'll overpromise on what they can actually deliver. But when it comes to artificial intelligence, you can't just quickly get up to speed and have that technology ready to go. And, and so some companies really are getting caught and struggling with that. And so we're finding out that, okay, this problem is actually hard and okay, maybe we aren't going there. We're also have starting to see some consolidation in the market as well. So is that going to bring about a winter? I'm not sure. These are just trends that we keep our eye on because we want to make sure that it's here to stay and that what people are doing are actually meaningful. Another issue that we run into is we are not yet at machine reasoning. So it, when we're trying to add artificial intelligence 
and really have it be a solution. We need to understand what we can and cannot do. And I think that we're starting to reach some limits because we do not have yet that machine reasoning to really take us to the next level of value. When you have guests on, do you try to tease apart what they promise to deliver what's kind of happening under the hood, although it's rather difficult, obviously, because they have a particular message to sell. But Dave and I have seen so many surveys, and you guys are familiar with it as well, that when you kind of anonymously probe, as it were, you know, take surveys of CEOs and some mid-level managers, the reality of what the company as a whole bills as, hey, we have this AI package for you. The reality is maybe it's an old statistical routine from 1990. You know, we call it AI. To what extent can you tease that out? Yeah, I would say, especially within the last, I would say, nine to 12 months, people have been starting to realize that they're trying to achieve a particular outcome. Like, So they already have an idea as to how they're going to apply AI machine learning technology to a problem. The challenges that they get, because we, we spend a lot of time talking about challenges, and we're always very open. We're like, we understand the hype, you can read the news, but we want to know what the reality is, right? A lot of it comes down to issues of data and data management and data quality. And I think organizations of all types are starting to realize the benefit of something really boring, which is basically methodology. I know we spend a lot of time talking about methodology, but we learned when we were doing application development that doing the old what's called waterfall approach doesn't work because it's very hard to respond to change. So that's when we adopted Agile as a methodology, and it's basically become the de facto approach that we take. Whether or not companies are actually using Agile is a whole other story, but at least it's become a mantra. And we're starting to see the same thing with data-oriented projects, mainly because data-oriented projects are not the same as building functionality. It's about, well, do you understand what the scope of data you need? What's the current quantity and availability of that data? What do I need to do to shape those data into the appropriate shape to make it useful for a particular analytical problem of which perhaps I'm trying to apply a machine learning approach and achieve some of these what we call the seven patterns of AI that we like to talk about a lot. And that's basically the backbone of methodology. I know that we talk a lot about methodology, but there's a methodology that's been around for over two decades. We didn't create it. <laughs> it's called CRISPDM, and it's been evolved recently. We'd like to talk about CPMAI, which is basically the evolution of CRISPDM. But basically, it's by and large the same general ideas, which is that you can achieve success when you try to match your expectations with reality. And of course, that is very not exciting <laughs> for CEOs who want to promise all sorts of things that the technology is just honestly a lot of times not capable of. So to answer your question a little bit, I mean, we do probe a lot for reality because we're not pessimists. We're trying to be realists, right? And we say like there is legitimate capability here. There's legitimate promise to machine learning, but we have to sort of temper our human desire to reach for the science fiction and think big, start small and iterate often. <laughs> I don't know, Kathleen, if you want to add to that, but that, that's what we've been seeing. Right. Yeah. I mean, we always say that because we're like, you think with the big picture in mind, but start small and make sure that you're solving one, a real business problem. Please make sure you're solving a real business problem and not just a little toy project that is never going to go anywhere or is not actually a problem <laughs> because that's not a good use of anybody's time. But then start small, make sure that you're going to get some immediate ROI so that you can get adoption and buy-in as well. And then you can continue to take on tasks until it starts to actually 
actually become something fairly big. As Ron mentioned, we talk about AI within the seven patterns of AI, because if I'm talking about AI and you're talking about AI, we're more than likely not talking about the same thing. I may be talking about AI-enabled chatbots, and you may be talking about a predictive maintenance system, and Ron may be talking about autonomous vehicles, for example, and they all fall within that umbrella of AI, but they are not the same thing. So we talk about one of the patterns is autonomous pattern. And that's where you're really trying to remove the human from the loop. And that is obviously a very difficult problem because if you're not having a human there, then you need to make sure that you are almost as close to accurate as you can possibly be. And so we say, don't start with that. Also, there's levels of autonomy. We still do not have fully functioning level five autonomous vehicles, but that doesn't mean that we can't work our way there. So when you think big, you think of that fully autonomous vehicle, but you start small. So you start with level one, which maybe is just one capability of autonomy and you grow from there. Although the highest levels may be a phase transition away. So (laughs) that's also a problem. (laughs) Well, you, you described those levels and, and sort of taking approaches with steps that you can actually manage. How have you found the, the discussions going in that area to help people understand, like, hey, you just articulated an end state that is well beyond the, the current state of the art, right? And so helping them back through that or just kind of a, your thoughts on generally how those discussions go or you know, where the hiccups tend to happen. I'm just curious how you kind of work people through that better understanding of what would actually be reasonable. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things we've seen, uh, and maybe even especially because of the pandemic and work from home and and a lot of, of changes, is that people are moving forward more with basically unintelligent forms of automation, just like straight up automation, you know, whether it's hardware forms of automation with with industrial automation or whatever, or more more likely software automation, so-called robotic process automation, which is a little bit of a misnomer. We've always scratched our heads with the word robot. People sort of instantly jumped to the idea of intelligent robots, but we're like, but you realize that 90 plus percent of industrial robots are not intelligent at all. And also we like to joke, you know, if you were walking down the street and someone said, hey, you're acting very robotic, that doesn't mean you're intelligent. As a matter of fact, it kind of means the opposite. So (laughs) I'm not sure why people jump to the conclusion of that. But this whole idea of the building the grand vision and trying to build more responsive and intelligent systems, we say it's okay to start with an entry point that is unintelligent, that you could start with automation. Because a lot of times, the things that are sort of preventing us from making more full use of of intelligent systems is the fact that we still have either paper or processes that are bound up in human activity. And as long as they're bound up that way, we're never going to be able to even get to the next step. There's lots of examples of this, especially in the government of paper and people bound processes. And we're like, take the robot out of the human. You know, the things that if you're trying to accomplish some task, but you're spending two hours of every day extracting emails or moving things from one system to the other, that's something a robotic system can do pretty well. Once you do that, then we can start talking about the next levels. Speaking of robotics, you guys spend a lot more time than Dave and I do talking to a whole bunch of different businesses, right, related to AI. And so from that perspective, here's a little narrow view that I'm going to ask you to expand on and whether what this means. So in rapid fire fashion, right, in July, OpenAI abandoned its robotics research. That's pretty major, right? And then Boston Dynamics that made the the famous little dog that we've all seen these wonderful little videos of, well, it just sold the controlling stake in all of that, the Hyundai Motor Group. 
Is there some sense of contraction in certain business areas than others? And what do these specific events portend kind of for robotics research? That's a great question. And we track the robotics market. So robotics, there's very well-funded companies that have gone out of business. And we say, how can this be? And I think there's a few factors to that. One, robotics is hard. And two, you need to make sure that you're actually solving a real pain point and that you're going to have a market for it as well. A lot of companies maybe have great ideas, but they just don't have a large enough market to support what goes into building what they do. In addition to the things that you've referenced, we also saw that Walmart, a few years ago, they had invested in cobots, so collaborative robots that would be on the floor of their stores to help with a variety of different things. It would scan store shelves to make sure that things were in stock, and if it wasn't, it would notify people, it could identify spills, things like that. And they've pulled out of that as well. So you have to weigh, okay, how much does it cost to build and maintain these robots? Also, we've seen Pepper Robot from SoftBank. They are no longer building that as well. We had a podcast on with actually somebody from the Smithsonian, the museums, where they had brought in Pepper to try and be kind of like a a guide at the museums. I think really it comes down to ROI. How much does it cost? to build and produce and maintain these robots and then how much does how much benefit are you getting another fun example is Ron and I back when we were still traveling had gone to Las Vegas there was a tipsy robot bar which is bartenders that are robots. So of course we had to do some research and check this bar out. And so <laughs> and we started talking because there obviously are some humans at the bar too. And they were telling us that the machines continually break and and break down and that they need to be maintenanced. And the bartenders are not technicians of this. So there were issues. Is, Is this not functional? People are coming to see this. Could a human just be quicker and cheaper and better? It's not because the researchers in robotics are not smart. Well, again, we'll make a call out to our my good old uh, undergraduate advisor, Rodney Brooks, he was part of the team at Rethink Robotics. And Rethink, they just could not get more funding. And then they went out of business. And actually, they were acquired by a German company. And actually, so technically, I think Rethink is still alive, but under new ownership and all that. And I think and this comes down to venture capital. We were talking about, well, what makes venture capital more willing to invest even more amounts of money into other areas that are, you know, a UI path on the more notable RPA companies has raised hundreds of millions. Of do- now they're public, but they raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And I know Rethink was struggling to raise 100 or 200. And it's like, do, are, do the VCs have enough patience? Do the investors have enough patience to deal with probably very long cycles in the robotics industry? So lots of factors, I think, at play. Yeah, I particularly wonder, like that example of the Smithsonian with having a guide bot or things like that, when you potentially have cheaper alternatives where it might be monitors with virtual guides and things that could be generated from other machine learning algorithms and things like that, if you're the business and you're looking at your choice of we're going to invest in this system, which is pretty simple, say like TV-based system or maybe holographic projection or whatever fancy thing you want to do, or this physical system that has a breakdown problem and maintenance issues and things like that. I got to imagine that there's the calculus weighs pretty hard there when you're trying to pick between the two and, and people are going with the probably the simpler option if it covers their bases. And like I said, the case where you actually need this particular capability is maybe a, a much smaller niche that just is waiting for the technology to become cheaper or, or some other aspect. 
Yeah, you know, we also have a breakdown of what artificial intelligence and cognitive technologies in general, what it can do, and then maybe some cases when you don't necessarily need to use it. And we say, if a human is just quicker, cheaper, or more reliable, then go with the human. You don't always need to do AI for AI's sake. In fact, we say, please don't do AI just to do AI. Make sure that you actually have a real business problem that you're trying to solve. And we, in our education, because at Cognolytica, we also do a lot of education, especially on best practices methodologies. And in that course, we have an AI go, no go. And if you do not answer yes to all of these questions, which is, will the stakeholders actually adopt this technology? And do you have the correct data? You know, it's a set of steps. If you answer no to any of them, either you shouldn't do the project or you need to wait and get that in order before you're going to do the project. Because why get through till the end of the project only to find out your stakeholder is not going to actually use it? (laughs) That's terrible. Well, let me loop back around to something that we were kind of alluding to earlier, or at least maybe it's a good example of some of the things that we've just been talking about. And that's the announcement that IBM made earlier this year that they were going to look to sell the IBM Watson Health part of their business. Any kind of response that you've seen from the larger community on, is that having any ripple effects or any reaction to that, right? There were a lot of promises that service was going to, you know, revolutionize medicine and make all these amazing advancements. That was the expectation. Yeah. You know, this has kind of been an ongoing discussion that we've been having actually on the AI Today podcast with folks in the health industry. We've actually interviewed folks at the chief data officer at Merck and and GlaxoSmithKline and a few others in the pharmaceutical industry and some United. I know we've had a number of interviews with the United Healthcare Group, the United Health Group and a few others. And the interesting thing is they tell us you realize that the health industry as a whole, healthcare and life sciences and pharmaceutical, tends to actually be somewhat risk averse. They're familiar with things like trials and regulatory processes and approvals. And they're well aware of, you know, when things go wrong, things can really go wrong. And you have all the industries that you might want to try out a technology on that might be aggressive implementers. Healthcare is actually probably not one of them. Financial services, it's kind of like, you know, let's go, let's go for it. You know, (laughs) hardly anybody in the room that's going to say no to a good AI solution there. But it turns out it's a very difficult industry. And I think from the outside perspective and from folks in healthcare, it's really not much of a surprise, actually, that IBM Watson, in this case, faltered and failed. It's not just IBM Watson. There there was a prediction not too long ago, I think in 2018 or 2019, Kathleen, I'll have to remember this one, where the Radiologists Association basically predicted that by the year 2022 or something, 90% of all radiology imagery would have a first pass analysis by an AI system. And they were planning for that. They're like, okay, what are what's going to be the future of radiology when you, you can basically get a first pass reading within five to 10 minutes to basically let you know if there's something anomalous or something. Now there's a big backing away from that. And that I think that's part of the challenge because you're like, maybe there are certain use cases in the healthcare industry. One of the things that we notice is we're like, clearly something happened in the pharmaceutical industry to allow them to produce a vaccine in a very short amount of time. And we all are pleasantly, hopefully, surprised that we were able to, you know, this Operation Warp Speed, we were able to produce a vaccine in something like nine months. And so the question is like, well, what was the main bottleneck? What got in the way? What prevented us from having this process before? Not a single pharmaceutical company has basically said that AI played a role at all. 
in the expediting of that process. There were other things, clinical trials and regulatory approvals and manufacturing processes and supply chain, this and that. Nobody said, oh, AI helped us. And if there was ever a time where we were like, we were ready to use AI. 2018, 2019, we were building up a capability. By 2020, you could talk to Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, IBM, doesn't really matter. We had the technology, we had the researchers, we had the data. If there was ever a time that AI could have stepped in and claimed responsibility, this was the time. But there's no attribution at all for AI accelerating that life cycle at all. And it says something. Yeah, Dave and I have talked about issues like that a lot. I would like to think in my optimist state that at least implicitly, and I don't know the degree to which this is true, but a lot of companies you know, like Facebook, OpenAI, and so on, they provided not a direct approach to helping with, with various things, but they provided AI tools to facilitate medical researchers to get their hands on data, talk about data, right? Or data sets, various research papers that the AI helps parse, so reduce the time it would take a medical researcher to, to go through this. So not a direct input. And again, I don't know the degree to which any bona fide medical researcher that actually has made advances in the last year and a half would ascribe whatever it is they did to what I'm describing. But I hope at some level that would help because it, it seems like of all the things AI could do, there are obviously issues from taking it from the, the research lab to a clinical setting. At the very least, it can facilitate medical researchers getting their hands on data and what other medical researchers are doing. And in that regard, AI can help a lot, I would think, right, in principle. I mean, we have been surprised with IBM. They, t they had an early lead. And so why they chose to go into healthcare was interesting because when we've talked to people from a wide range of companies, and they all say that they're very risk averse when it comes to adopting and being first adopters with technology and with anything, because there's so much regulation and they're afraid of being sued. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. So the fact that they chose to start with that industry was interesting. And maybe if they had started with another, would they have had greater success? Who knows? You've covered a lot of stories again over the last four years on the AI Today podcast. Any that particularly stand out to you as, wow, that was really either enlightening or I did not expect that conversation to go the way that it went? Yeah, I think two main things have stood out to me on the podcast because we have interviewed a wide range of people and then we cover topics as well related to the entire space. And the first area is that the mundane things are the ones that have the most impact on organizations. When we say start small, think big, and iterate often, it's really those small things that are having such incredible impact. So building a chatbot that's able to answer one question or using a predictive analytics solution to help your organization, things like that have really had major impacts on organizations and I think people's everyday lives, whether or not you actually realize it. And then the second thing that has really stood out for me is that people at organizations do not have a firm grasp still on how to run data and AI projects. For as much talk and what we're doing, I think that it still surprises me that people do not have methodologies in place and a firm grasp on that. And I think that is going to bite them because if you do not have data governance rules and a plan in place and know where your data is coming from and know how it's getting cleansed and know who has access to that data, things can go wrong and usually do. 
Yeah, we had a really interesting interview with Dr. Louis Paris Breva. He's a professor at MIT. He's, he does a few other things, but he actually had this really interesting controversial viewpoint that we might have too much data for the AI problems that we're trying to solve, like the actual trying to achieve AGI problems. He's the one that basically first sort of discussed the idea of the big data magic trick, which is that if you have enough data, you can basically create classes of problems that machines are really good at solving because you're basically using the power of big data and the ability for machines to find patterns and to to derive those patterns and create models that represent those patterns, which machines are pretty good at. But you don't end up solving the harder problem, which is basically that we still have problems of transferring knowledge from one domain to another domain. And you can build a great conversational model, but it can't do any recognition, things like that. And he's saying we're stunting ourselves by over-focusing on big data-centric solutions. And we may actually be setting ourselves back by not trying to solve some of the harder problems. And he's on a bit of a little uh, crusade to basically say these things that we're doing are useful, but they're not really helping us get to this end goal. It's a really interesting interview. And maybe one other interview that I think is really interesting is that, uh, as mentioned, looking internationally, I, I really encourage folks to see what's happening with AI outside of our U.S. national borders. I know our listeners are all over the world. And what's happening with AI in places like Australia and Singapore and all over Europe and it's a slightly different flavor in terms of where and how they see AI being useful. Of course, different perspectives on data privacy and ethics and regulation and all that sort of stuff. But I would say there's some really interesting things happening. Australia, for I don't know what's going on in Australia. <laughs> I know, it's hot and heavy at the AI. I know. I, I mean, and also I think there's a lot of European countries that you may not think would be very forward thinking with artificial intelligence. Estonia, for example, or Hungary. And they are coming up with national AI strategies and really trying to move forward with things. Countries that not necessarily have traditionally been strong with artificial intelligence. And that's always interesting for us to see as well. You know, you mentioned that idea of national strategies with AI. And it was really fascinating to watch over the last few years. Again, nations stepping up and deciding we as a nation need to publish where we're going with this technology. It became almost a global phenomenon, right? That that every nation had to throw in their hat to say this is where we're going with this. We see that coming from a few angles. One of the things that we're seeing in these country level strategies, we've now produced reports now for the last two years. We've actually literally looked at every country from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. And every tiny little country in between, and we looked at their strategy, we also looked at any worldwide laws and regulations that are coming out of these countries. It might be that the EU does something, you might think it's relevant to the EU, but it becomes relevant to the world very quickly. What we're finding is that some of the countries are building their AI strategies in part out of fear of missing out, which is that, you know, if there's going to be a new industrial wave, they don't want to be caught unaware. So there's a forward thinking like we need to be part of this wave, otherwise we'll be left out. And in some cases, there's also a fear of loss of control, especially around things like there is a whole lot of thought around lethal autonomous weapons, data privacy and data ownership. So that's just something interesting. And I would encourage folks just to listen to some of the podcasts that we have on that subject. Yeah, I think Andy and I maybe had mentioned there was a response from, who was it, the Department of Treasury that I think responded to the EU's commission's mm -hmm, report right. on, on regulating AI and some pretty strong responses <laughs> Very strong, yeah. saying basically, hey, uh, we disagree with some of these things and we better not let the European Union dictate on how to, 
how this technology is going to get regulated or at least need to figure out a, a way to come to some sort of agreement. So that's certainly going to be absolutely fascinating to watch as those sort of things come into the arena, so to speak. So I hate to say it, we're getting long in the tooth here, but I wanted to ask you guys one other question because it's really interesting. You started incorporating an AI education series to your podcast. So I was hoping you could just describe a bit about that, how it came about and where you want to be taking that. Yeah. So at Cognolytica, we focus on education as well because we want to make sure that people listening to the podcast and then our customers as well are educated on the full range of what artificial intelligence can do. And so from our methodology training, so we advocate for best practices methodology, the CPMAI methodology, which is cognitive project management for AI. We have produced a education series that people can subscribe to. Go to courses.cognolytica.com to learn more. But with that, we said our listeners would probably benefit from some of this as well. So our education series is a bit of a teaser with what we have to offer, but touches on very important topics that we want people to, one, know that there is education out there. So please pay attention. And if you need additional resources, you can always go to. But then also to say, hey, this is what we have seen from the past number of years that we have been covering this space. And these are the best practices. This is what we're seeing. These are what other companies are doing. And to give an additional way to educate our podcast listeners. One of the things is that it would be nice if data and data literacy was taught even as early as elementary school. I know it's crazy to say that, but you know, we learn the scientific process, the scientific method when you're in middle school, probably in, in elementary school as well. The, the lack of a lot of basic <laughs> data literacy is a little concerning. That's why we even have fights where people argue over public health measures because there's a misunderstanding of statistics, honestly, and probability and a lot of issues like that. So what we're trying to do with the education is, is just put out common standard understanding so that way when two people are having a conversation about the use and applicability of AI, that there's not an argument over basic facts, which is how does unsupervised learning work or supervised learning, things like that. Well, that's great. I mean, that as you mentioned earlier as well, right, ensuring that we're actually talking about the same thing when we use the word autonomous or even just the umbrella term AI, that we can have a more meaningful discussion if we, we ensure we're on the same page and actually talking about the same thing. It sounds very simple as the idea, but it takes a lot of work to making sure that we're all synced up. So that's a really great endeavor. Kathleen, Ron, it has been so fascinating to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this opportunity to do this podcast swap. Andy and I have had a blast talking with you here now over the last two hours. Again, for our listeners, we're going to be posting the podcast that we had with Kathleen and Ron on our feed, and they're going to be posting ours on theirs, et cetera. It'll be a great time. So be sure to check those out. And we certainly wish you all the best and continued success with AI today and your work at Cognolytica. Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you so much. We definitely enjoyed this as well. Yeah, thrilled. All right. Well, if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, don't forget to check out our website where we will post all the relevant links for today's discussion. And of course, be sure to check out the AI Today podcast as well. But I, for one, welcome our new computer overlords. Thanks as always, Andy. I will see you next week. AI with AI is produced by Dave Broyles and Andy Lachinsky, with co-production, editing, and mixing by John Stimson. Theme music is by Dave Broyles. 
If you enjoy our show, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about us and follow us on Twitter at AI with AI. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview that we had, uh, Kathleen and myself, with the AI with AI podcast hosts, Andy Olachinsky and David Broyles. We did have them on our own podcast as well. So stay tuned to hear our interview with them, uh, where we talk to them about some of the things that they are seeing on their podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyrighted by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.